Our scripture reading this morning is from Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 7. If you'd like to follow along, there's a blue Bible in the pew in front of you. You can find this scripture on page 609. Chapter 49, verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to discover you afresh, Lord, to see more aspects of your majesty and your greatness and your goodness. We pray that your Spirit, who has spoken through Isaiah, would attend us now that we might understand and receive this message from Isaiah as your word to us, Lord, your word to encourage us, to build us up in Christ, to form us as a people that truly can be a light to the world as we live out the light of Jesus Christ and proclaim him. Lord, bless us to that end, we pray. Amen. I found myself uh, years ago in a really tough situation for several months in which uh, I had had a series of, as I saw them, some failures in my ministry And partly due to that and partly due to some larger things was receiving a lot of criticism to such an extent that I really wondered if I was going to lose my job. And it was so serious that I, for several months, was waking up every morning at 4, 4 4.30. Maybe some of you get up that early, but I don't. (laughs) and I maybe sometimes was in a sweat. I, was, I just woke up 
worried sick. Not only that I would lose my job, but then I didn't know what I would do if I lost my job because I thought I won't get another job and I don't know what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. I don't know how I'll support my family. You know, those kind of questions. And part of it was the confusion of if all of that would happen, then what was the meaning of my life? You know, the, the purposelessness of it, it seemed. That I made, you know, particular choices along the way not to do this thing or not to do this other thing, but to be a minister, and, and here I am facing that I won't be a minister anymore. What was that all for? Uh, it seemed so uh, absolutely as everything was going to blow up. And <clears throat> this passage honestly surprised me. I knew it was a passage about a light to the nations. It's got that phrase in it, right? And, and this is one of those passages from which we take this whole series that we're doing on Isaiah chapters 40 through 55, a light to the nations. But I didn't expect it as it set forth this one, this servant who is a light to the nations, to have so much about it. In fact, the most important part about it is about his own struggle with the vanity of what he was doing. This really, really surprised me. It, it intrigues me, and it opens up a new room of Christ's glory to me that he would suffer this much and enter into the human condition in this way. It stretched me some uh, to think about Christ in this way. And so as we, we come to this passage, we're going to see the servant's preparation and purpose, how he was prepared by God for this purpose of glorifying his name, of restoring Israel, of being a light to the nations. But then we're also going to see the servant's turmoil inside his heart and the turmoil that came to him from the outside. And I hope that you will see in this the the call that you have not to be perfect, not to understand everything. And in the midst of many times turmoil in your life and things blowing to pieces and you don't know why, that still... In the midst of that, you have a call to help promote the peace and restoration of the church, to help build up the church in love and with the church in all of its weakness to bear light to the world. I used an illustration years ago doing a seminar on evangelism, and I think I've shared it with the congregation some years ago that There's a phrase in Titus 2.10 as Paul is speaking to slaves of all people. And he says for the slaves to adorn the doctrine of God. And I was considering that passage in terms of evangelism. And it really bothered me. Bothered me deeply. Because as I think about my life, adorning God's doctrine... No way. (laughs) No, my life would only tend to stain or darken God's doctrine. I mean, God's doctrine is pure, it's perfect. What's my life? How could I adorn that doctrine? But the illustration I used was that uh, the world 
to picture everybody in the world in boats that are in the midst of storm and they're some of them hanging on to the boat. Some of the boats are capsizing. It's, it's a mess out there, okay? And instead of bringing angels, you know, from high up and coming down to speak the gospel to these people, which you'd think they could do a much better job than us, and they could adorn the doctrine in that way because they're perfect. No, what happens is he sends these boats that are also in the storm, these people that are struggling and fighting, sometimes feeling like they're capsizing, and he enables them to live in such a way to trust God, to put their hand, their, themselves in his hands to show people that, hey, we're writing this as well, and there's a God to be trusted. That adorns the doctrine of God. And in that sense, angels can't adorn it. You see that? They really can't adorn it in that way to bring a failing, struggling human being alongside struggling, failing human beings with a message of hope that's beginning to work itself out in their own lives. So as we come to this passage, very interesting that it ends with this wonderful climax of making you as a light for the nations. But as it does so, there are some surprising things about this servant that are very important for us as we live our lives. So, we're going to look at this uh, first three verses, and if you've, uh, it would really help if you're looking at the text. We, in our uh, church, really like to study what's there, right? This, it's about what does God's Word say, how can we understand it, uh, how does it speak to our lives, he begins here in verse 49, I mean chapter 49. And by the way, uh, we're, we're dealing with a text that's written to Israel in exile, okay? They're in the judgment of exile in Babylon. That's the, the assumed uh, condition into which this text is to be spoken, okay, originally. And so it's about this message to them, but you will see as we have so many times, this message isn't just a message of hope. Hey, you're going to be brought back into Israel or the land of Palestine, but it's much bigger than that because the real issue with Israel is not just geographical location. Okay, you're exiled. We're getting you back in the land. The real issue is, what about your estrangement from God? What about your alienation against God? What about your hatred of God? How are we going to deal with that? There's a restoration that needs to happen to Israel. But then it breaks out beyond that of this message that goes to the whole world. So it's so much bigger than just this geographical relocation. But it's the restoration of Israel and then the hope of the restoration of the world that comes from it. So he begins, uh, the servant here is speaking. Listen to me, O coastlands. Give attention, you peoples from afar. It's, it's unusual because this phrase, listen to me, is only found in Isaiah and outside of this passage, only by God himself speaking, Yahweh. But here the servant is saying this. And so you begin to wonder, what's his relationship to Yahweh? Or is this Yahweh in some way? How could he speak like this? Listen to me, O coastlands. And then he, in verses 1, 2, and 3, describes his own preparation 
and purpose. And it's interesting, if you take the first phrases of this few verses, they form a line of thought. We'll call that A. But then if you take the second phrase of each verse, or yeah, each couplet, then that forms a thought as well. So let's look at it that way. The Lord called me from the womb. Then verse 2, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. Then he made me a polished arrow. You see, just keep skipping. And then he said to me, you're my servant. So he called me, he shaped me into a sharp sword and a polished arrow and said, you are my servant. So that's one aspect of the uh, majesty of the servant. But then the other side you get from the B (laughs) text, so to speak, like the backside of the record, right? From the body of my mother, he named my name. There's the emphasis or remembered my name, held my name in memories. Then in the shadow of his hand, he hid me. In his quiver, he hid me away. And then he revealed me, I'm Israel in whom you will be glorified. So there's that idea of giving him a name and hiding him away and then revealing him as Israel itself. And so this is a way to give the completeness of, of what this servant is and what he is to accomplish. The sharp sword is not a, a, an instrument of destruction or war. He says, my mouth is like a sharp sword. And probably the polished arrow has to do with that as well. Speaking, uh, the sword, of course, is close in fighting. Arrow takes something far away. So there's the accuracy of the sharp sword. And then there is uh, the, or the, the effectiveness of the sword and then the accuracy of the arrow. So he's made into this perfect instrument to accomplish God's purposes. And Revelation 1.16 takes this idea because in the vision of Christ, it says from his mouth comes a sword, a two-edged sword. And so it's very likely taking this very image and referring it to Jesus Christ. So his word is going to be powerful and penetrating. It's going to be life-altering. You could say his word is going to be world-altering. It's going to transform all things eventually, like creation itself. And brothers and sisters, the amazing thing here is this servant who is so carefully called and so carefully prepared is 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 done so or, or prepared for his people, to redeem his people. He's prepared ultimately, as we'll see later in Isaiah 52, to die in the place of his people, to suffer as a sheep uh, for, uh, for the sake of the sheep that had gone astray. And so God has, has worked so carefully and called him forth so that he would be our Savior, our Redeemer. And he calls him Israel. And this is, this is unusual because on the one hand, he calls him Israel in verse 3. And then in verse 5, he says, he's to bring back Jacob or Israel to be gathered back to him. One commentator calls, talks about the complexity of this person. That there seems to be this head who is Israel and his body, the people that belong to him are Israel. And so he becomes the new Israel because the old Israel, as we've seen in chapters past, were blind and deaf 
and refused God. They were unable and they were rebellious against God. So they were supposed to be the instrument to draw other people to God. But how are they going to draw other people to God? How are they going to be instrument to, to bring the light of God to the nations when they themselves have abandoned God? And so there's this need for this servant who, in a sense, takes the place of Israel. He becomes the true Israel, the new Israel, the ideal Israel, who both brings Israel back to God and then brings the nations back to God and even then uses Israel to bring the nations back to God. So what an amazing person is set before us in this uh, servant. And he says, in him I will be glorified, verse 3. And we're reminded, as Jesus himself said of the Father, that he was there to glorify his Father, that his Father would be glorified in him. He says this in John 12 and in John 17. And it's remarkable because there Jesus is talking about his death being to God's glory. His death exhibiting what God is like, that God would love us in this profound way, that God would sacrifice for himself in this profound way, and thus it brings honor and glory to God. And so in verses 1 through 3, we have this preparation of the servant for this great purpose of glorifying his name. And that's why verse 4 comes as such a surprise. Because it sounds great, okay? He's a sharp sword. He's a polished arrow. He's hidden away. He's going to bring him out at this special time to do his work. You're my servant. I'm going to be glorified in you. But I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. It comes as such a shock. And especially when we try to think, well, I thought this was about the servant who is to be Christ. And here he is saying, Vanity, nothing. What is this all about? We can think of the times where Christ was faced with the unbelief of the nation itself, his rejection by the nation. We can think of his own people, his own disciples, many of whom turned away from him during his life, as we read in John 6. And then even his most intimate associates turn away from him in the night in which he was betrayed, betrayed by all of them. We think of him on the cross when he quotes Psalm 22 and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we mustn't underplay the sense as a human being that he had of the futility, the seeming human futility of everything that he had come to do. And at that moment, it appeared that there was no result whatsoever. I'm an abandoned, hated man on a cross. Even my closest friends have turned their back on me. What? Why have you forsaken me? Shocking statements of Christ's own uh, dealing with the purposelessness of life, of how good people, as Ecclesiastes says, sometimes have the worst ends and seemingly sometimes the worst people outwardly have the best lives. How do you make sense of that? The meaninglessness 
of it all. So he, the servant himself, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. That second word for nothing is the same word in Genesis 1-2 where it says the earth was formless. It had made no sense when God began to work with it. There was no structure at all there. And that's what he's saying. There's no structure. There's no meaning to my life. And this word vanity that you see there in verse It's the one used something like 30 times in Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Everything's empty. It makes no sense. And so here is the servant himself saying these things. And Oswald says this, We think that to admit feelings of futility is not to trust in God. Okay? And on the other hand, we often believe if we really trusted God, we would never have feelings of futility. You see, Christ shows, or the servant shows here, that though he was more than human, he's certainly not less than human, right? He really entered into the reality of human life. He really entered into the sense of powerlessness that we sometimes have. He entered into... The, sense, uh, the senselessness of life, and he suffered it. And so there's this, but I said, verse 4, I've labored in vain. Then there's another turnaround in the verse, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. My right means my justice. He will do right in the end with me. And there will be reward in the midst of my suffering at the end when God deals with me. And we think of Peter's words when he says in 1 Peter that Jesus did not attack those who attacked him. He didn't didn't pour out threats against them. How was he able to do that? It said because he was entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He put himself in the hands of his God. Even though this is senseless, this is madness. I am the Lord of I'm your son, and yet the nations have hated me, and they're killing me. And yet, even then, though they were pronouncing threats upon him and mocking him and ridiculing him, he entrusted himself to his father. And later, Peter says that we must do the same. He says those who suffer according to God's will must entrust their souls to a faithful creator. And so for those of us who preach the Word of God or those who are elders and deacons in the church or teachers in the church or if you serve in the many hundreds of different ways in the church, you may have at time heartache and disappointment and your work may seem fruitless. You may seem, what is the use? There's nothing to show for it. I'm this thankless job. I'm ignored. I'm never recognized. What's the point of it? And Jesus is entering into the seeming futility of life and yet saying, nonetheless, I put myself in the hands of God. So he has entered into our situation and is our example and encourager and strength that we ourselves can entrust ourselves to God as well. And this happens even in other ways that we may suffer or, or no failure. 
in, in family situations where you invest yourself in a, in a relationship for years only to have it turn bad and only to have perhaps someone abandon you and it's something that never entered your head and you don't know how you're going to face the future. Jesus has entered into that. He knows the pointlessness of seeming to invest everything and having it all blow up in your face. Yet surely, he says, my right is with the Lord. Also, not only is there this, first of all, this sense of the end in view, that I trust myself with God because I know He has an end in view. Verse 5, He begins again to talk about He who formed me from the womb to be His servant. And this is one of the reasons you see in verse... One, he he talks about calling him from the womb. Verse 5, he talks about calling him from the womb. And so verse 4 becomes this centerpiece of the passage. It becomes the most important part of the passage, uh, emphasized by its structure. That this is what uh, the centerpiece of this, uh, this passage, talking about the struggle of the servant. And now he, he recalls his purpose, you see. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity, yet my right is with the Lord. And the Lord says, I formed you from the womb to be my servant. So he recalls God's purpose. As Tom recalled in prayer, God's purpose before time began of choosing his people and planning good for his people. And so Paul helps us in this in Ephesians 2.10 where he says, We're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which he prepared beforehand before the foundation of the world, to encourage us. God has a purpose for you. You're His workmanship. He's prepared before the foundation of the world good works that you might walk in them. It's the same thing here as being formed from the womb to be His servant, to bring Jacob back that Israel might be gathered. And then he recalls the dignity that he has before the Lord. I'm honored in the eyes of the Lord. And how many times in Scripture are we said, you're the called. You, though you don't feel to be, and many times aren't, you're now the holy ones. You're the saints. Yes, I'm calling you a saint, every one of you, as Scripture does. You are the light of the world with all of your failures. Still, Jesus says to you, you're the light of the world. And so he calls us to, to recognize the dignity that we have because we belong to Christ, because we have the message of Christ. And then he also says, my God has become my strength. So that we're to recall that God himself will enable us to continue. God himself will enable us to be strong so that we can do good to others in the midst of our own confusion, our own loss, our own devastation. And that's what Peter is saying there in First Peter. He says that we would be able to continue to, be, uh, to do good as we entrust our soul to a faithful creator, to continue to do good for others. So there's this statement of, of the labor, the sensing the vanity of, our, of labor, to, to spend his strength for nothing, And yet he entrusts himself to God as he does this. And then God in verse 6 says, It's not just that you're going to uh, raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations 
that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And more literally, that you will be my salvation to the end of the earth. So this servant will be the light of the nations. This servant will be God's salvation to the nations. And look to the, the extent to which the servant goes to become this light and salvation. Both suffering this sense of vanity and loss. And then in verse 7, it says, He is one deeply despised and abhorred. Despised is the same word used later in Isaiah 53 in the complete description of his suffering. He was despised and rejected by men. And this word, abhorred by the nations, means that he was regarded as distasteful and repugnant, as detestable and disgusting. They had this opinion of him. This was the outside rejection uh, of, of, of our Lord Jesus Christ, of the servant himself. And yet, it, in the midst of being despised and abhorred, in the midst of having this sense of confusion, he becomes the light for the nations. He becomes the salvation to the ends of the world. And he, he goes to this extent, you see, to bear our sins away from us. He goes to this extent to enter into your own suffering and your personal confusion, your personal devastation, so that he can hold you and bring you out of that and continue to give you life in the midst of it. To be a complete Savior for his people. Not a distant Savior, but a a Savior to whom you can look and say, you know how I feel, you know how I suffer, you've been in the midst of this devastation. You didn't, ha- you didn't keep yourself away from it. But you entered the devastation to bring me through it and finally out of it. Because in Him, we also will be honored. In Him, we also will gain this strength. In Him, as Paul talks about in Acts 13, quoting this very passage, the church becomes this light for the nations. The church because we bear the light of Christ and we live out the light of Christ, we become a light for the nations. So that this servant makes us servants in his image. Not that we can suffer for the world, but there is that sense in which by our suffering, we will demonstrate the same love that Christ demonstrated in his suffering. That we will exhibit the same sacrifice in our servanthood, in our love for others, as Christ demonstrated on a far higher way in His sacrifice for His people. And isn't it amazing that one of the results of this one, this servant who you could say is a worthless, repulsive slave, yet kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves. It's as though kings rise from their thrones in awe of this one, this despised servant, and they fall on their faces totally subservient to him. And what they are seeing in part is that this is not one who comes with arrogance. This is not one who comes with the big show of power. This is one who pierces them that he uses his strength for kindness. 
He uses his unlimited power to serve his people and sacrifice for his people. And it devastates the kings. It goes far, it goes outside their radar. They can't believe it. And they fall down to worship him. They fall down to serve this one who is greater than anything that they could imagine. Here's the one who identifies with outcasts. Here's the one who himself is abhorred for their sake so that they know that he is with them and he will carry them through. He will stand with them. And in him, you see, we will find our only honor. First, the honor of being servants in his image, of using our strength for love, okay? Being like Jesus, Loving others even though we are suffering. Loving others even though we sometimes are confused. Loving others even though we can't make sense of life at times. But we're enabled to do the same thing that Jesus did. And then we, one day, as we read, will be glorified with him. Wonder of wonders. That he would bring us into his glory with him. So that we can truly say, like with Jesus... There may not be glory along the way, and there will not be. And many times God's people will be abhorred, but there's glory in the end. When you think about it, what else did Jesus ever promise you or me? He didn't promise us anything but that. He's a suffering servant, and if you follow me, you take up your cross, you bear it, come after me. That's really trusting Christ. That's really trusting His purpose for you. It's really trusting in a love that captures your heart. And you think, I will trust Him with everything. I'll trust Him with everything. That's the servant set before us here. A glorious servant to be worshipped, to be served, to be emulated, to be like in every way. Let us pray. Oh, Lord. Your love that would break into our lives, that would suffer for us, that would go to such an extent to bear our sin so that we could be rescued from it. Lord, it is a love, as Paul says in Ephesians 3, that surpasses comprehension. It is the love that turns our hearts around. It's the love that wins us to you. So that we, in Paul's words also, would no longer live for ourselves, but live for you. For we do by nature live for ourselves. Lord, we pray that you would open up our hearts to see the greatness of your love, the greatness of your servanthood, why you are such a light to the nations, for your God that breaks the mold of the ideas that we have about God. You're a God who uses his power to love and sacrifice through the person of Jesus Christ. A God to be adored. A God to lose ourselves over and for. A God to be enjoyed and delighted in. A God to be like. Oh Lord, redeem us for yourself. Amen.